If you would please take out your Bibles, we are in Mark chapter 5 today. Mark chapter 5, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service. Mark chapter 5. Last week, as we concluded chapter 4 of Mark, we looked at the story of, of Jesus after a long day. It tells us that it was evening time. He mentioned to his disciples, he said, hey, let's get in the boat. Let's go over to the other side of the lake. We see that the disciples took him along with them in the boat, and it tells us that Jesus fell asleep, exhausted after a long day of ministry, but we see that this huge storm kicks up in the middle of the night and crash the waves crashing over the boat. And we remember that Jesus was asleep in the boat. The disciples go to him and say, Jesus, don't you care that we're, that we're perishing? And we talk to the fact that they had a totally, totally, mis, they totally misunderstood. They totally missed it. Jesus told them before they left, we're going to the other side. And that meant one thing, they're going to make it to the other side. <laughs> They, told, they, they get all caught up in, in, in what was going on around them. And it tells us Jesus gets up. He completely calms the storm. It says after he says, hush, be still to the storm, to the wind, to the waves. It says that it became immediately, completely calm. And Jesus turns to them and said, why are you afraid? Why are you so filled with fear? Why don't you, why don't you have faith yet after all that you've seen, after all that you've experienced and, and I, I point that out as we begin chapter 5, because notice what it says right at the outset. They came to the other side. <laughs> Just like Jesus said. Just like Jesus said. And the thing that I want to point out as we begin this today, the word of God is true. The promises of God are true when they are spoken, not when you and I recognize it. God is always true, everything that he says. And when Jesus says, again, we're going to the other side, they're going to the other side. And it just strikes me every time I read this story, just something that kind of gets me thinking, because it tells us again, it became immediately calm, completely calm. We mentioned last time, there's not even a breath of wind left. So guess what? If you're going to make it to the other side, guess what has to happen now? Somebody's got to start rowing. Somebody's going to have to start working to get there. The wind isn't going to help you anymore. Just a little, little side note. Be careful what you ask for. But anyway, let's pick up there after quite an evening. It doesn't tell us that what time of day it is, but I'm, I'm assuming here as we begin our, our story in chapter 5 that it's probably early in the morning, and it says they came to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. Now that is the... The, the area of the Decapolis, Decapolis referring to 10 cities, they're Roman cities with heavily Greek influence, they're Gentile cities. This is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. One of the part, part of that Decapolis area is this area of the country of the Gerasenes. When he, Jesus, got out of the boat, notice immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, 
and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Imagine the scene. They get to the other side. They're getting out of the boat. And right away, this man comes running out. It tells us that he's living in the tombs. He's not living in the city. He's not living among living people. He's living among dead people. He makes his home in the tombs. He's screaming. He's terrorizing the entire area. It says night and day, terrorizing the whole coastline there. It tells us that in Luke's account that he's naked and has been there that way for a while. And no doubt as they're approaching, they're hearing this guy. I wonder if the disciples are like, what is going on over here? And here as they land, here he comes running out. And it tells us that he has an unclean spirit, that he's possessed demonically. We will see as we continue our study this morning that it's not just one demon in this man. There are so many. They refer to themselves as legion Legion was a Roman garrison of up to 6,000 soldiers. Now, we don't know if that meant there were 6,000 demons in him, but they say there are many. This man, demon-possessed, it tells us he's cutting himself with stones. He's living in the tombs. They've been trying to, to, to bind him to, to take care of the problem themselves, but they can't. They finally just throw him out of the, the inhabited area, and he's living amongst the tombs. And the, the first thing that I want to point out is we don't know how this man ended up this way. This is our first introduction to him. But no doubt, we can, we can draw some assumptions. First of all, this didn't happen overnight to him. Somehow, somewhere along the way in his life, he opened up the door. He opened up the opportunity for these demonic forces to come in. And they can come in through any number of ways, all, they, all that they're looking for is just an opening, just an opportunity to come in. Another assumption that we can make is he didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I want to be possessed by as many demons as will come in. He probably just thought innocently enough, I'll just go after this, or I'll go down after this, or I'll follow into this. Just, you know, what harm can it be? And I say that because one of the biggest tools I believe that the enemy is using with great success today is to make the world believe that he either doesn't exist, that he's just some big joke, or that he's really pretty harmless. That, you know, if you just do this, if you just get involved in that, it's really not that big of a deal. And the enemy just, again, wants just a little crack to get in. I'm amazed when I look around, when I see the, the culture and the society that we live in, this fascination with death in movies and in television shows, and it's just, it's all made to be funny, it's all made to be pretty, pretty, you know, no big deal. Death is a big deal. And, and it's the, the, in this area, again, the, the, the tombs that he's living in, he's living among the dead. Just all of this, just, just opening up a crack. I say this again because the enemy wants to convince us, convince us that it's no big deal, that he's really pretty harmless. But it's not harmless. He just wants just a little, a little opening. Now, before we go any further, this is also very extremely important as Christians. If you are a born-again believer here today, it is impossible for you to be possessed demonically. Impossible. Many people ask that. Many people are concerned. As a Christian, well, I have a demon. No, you don't. 
You don't. That's impossible. The Bible tells us that when we are born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, and the Holy Spirit is not into timesharing. Okay? He doesn't, he doesn't even let you go one weekend a year. Okay? He did, but it is still possible for Christians to open up their, their, themselves to problems, to issues that we have no business messing with. It, please hear, if you check your horoscope today, don't ever do that again. Okay? You have no business doing that. We might sound like that's totally innocent. It's not. It's not. If you are checking for other things, if, you, if you're having your fortune looked into, if you call those numbers, don't ever do that again. It's that the enemy just wants one little avenue in. Now, again, you can't be possessed, but you can open up your life to things that will cause a lot of problems. The, the devil hates us. Demonic, the demons hate us. They don't want to be our friends, no matter how much you, they, they try to convince us of that. They hate us as humans because we bear the image of God. The Bible tells us that in, in, in Genesis, at creation. God said, let us make man in our image. We are image bearers of God. That's, the enemy hates that in us. And he will do everything that he can to destroy that image. The Bible tells us Jesus saying in John 10, 10, the thief, the enemy, comes, notice this, only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, steal, kill, and destroy. He can't possess us, but, and he can't steal our, our eternal life. We're sealed with that, but he can steal our joy by getting us going in a different direction. He can kill our, our fellowship that we could have uninterrupted. He can destroy our, our ministry because of things that we get involved in. Like I said, guys, as Christians... We have no business going that direction, even looking that way. Jesus said, I came that you have life and have it abundantly. The enemy wants to convince us and convince the world that if you follow Jesus, life is boring, never anything exciting. He wants to take all the fun away. I'm here to tell you that's one of the biggest lies he's ever convinced the world of. There is more joy, excitement, and fun following Jesus because it goes on forever. There's none of the, there's none of the kicks that, or the kickbacks that come from the kicks. It's a beautiful thing. He comes to give us abundant life. The enemy's only goal is to destroy life. He does that. And again, we look at today, and it's not just among young people, but we see the, the whole idea of destroying the image of God. It tells us here that he's gashing himself with stones, the epidemic of, of cutting and mutilating our bodies, drugs, alcohol, and the ultimate example of destroying the image of God in, in the human life is suicide. I mean, it's epidemic. And he doesn't care how, as long as that is, is if that's marred or degraded. Verse 4, that word that's used there to subdue, interestingly enough, the only other time that's used in the New Testament is in James chapter 3 when it talks about taming wild animals. You know, if, if the enemy can't get us to destroy our, our bodies that way, he'll try to get us to degrade them, even in our own minds. That's what, that's what evolution is all about. Evolution is the lie that the enemy's got the world believing that, that we're, not, we're not created in the image of God. We've just evolved from wild animals, which is just, again, 
his attempt to degrade and to destroy. I don't think it can be repeated enough. Guys, don't give the enemy even a crack. (laughs) That's all he wants to get in. This man, when we look at his situation, it was absolutely hopeless. There was nothing that he could do to fix it, obviously. And no matter what man tried to do, completely hopeless, except, (laughs) except for Jesus. He had no hope apart from Jesus. But that's why Jesus came, was to bring hope to this man. He crossed the Sea of Galilee, as we're going to see, for this man. He's going to leave after this episode and go back. You see, the enemy's desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. But John also records for us in 1 John chapter 3, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. We see, as we continue, in verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, that last verse there, out of the country, Luke tells us what they're referring to there is to send them away to the abyss, the the eternal lake of fire. They understand, the demons do, that that is their ultimate destination. They're just saying, Jesus, don't send us there now. It kind of goes back and forth between him and them speaking. No doubt, again, the demonic forces speaking through this man to Jesus. And it tells us that when they land there, he's screaming, but he sees Jesus from afar off, and he comes running up to them. And it tells us the first thing that, that he does is bow down before Jesus. Now, that is not in an act of worship, but it is in an act of submission. They completely understand who Jesus is. When they refer to him as Jesus, son of the most high God, that is a title that emphasizes the transcendence of almighty God and the demonic forces realizing Jesus is God and realizing that they're not on an equal playing field with Jesus. It's not like they can gang up on Jesus. They understand and recognize that he is eternal, all-powerful, almighty creator God. And they come up to him, bow down before him, and they even cry out in in a prayer to him, don't send us to our final destination now, realizing he has the absolute power to do that. Now, while theology, what we believe, is very important, we have to understand that it, it, it's not what we know that saves us. Because here we see very clearly that these demons knew exactly who Jesus is. Exactly who. The disciples in the boat last week, remember, after Jesus calmed the storm, they said to each other, who is this? Who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They're still trying to process it all. The demons have no doubt who he is. Jesus, son of the most high God, that's not enough. Even fearing him, 
isn't enough because obviously they fear him greatly here. James tells us this in James chapter two, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. It's not a bad first step, but if you stop there, you're still just as lost as you were before you took that step. It's not enough even to just simply pray to Jesus because again, they are imploring, they are praying to Jesus. You see, it's not, it's not just what we know, but it's who we know. But it's not just who we know, it's how we know who we know. And who knows us. Because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, there's a day that is coming where many will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all sorts of miracles in your name? Didn't we do a whole bunch of great stuff in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. He doesn't dispute the fact that they did a whole bunch of stuff and even gave God credit for it. He says, I never knew you. You were never one of mine. You never repented of your sin and, and made me Lord of your life. And Because of that, he says, depart from me. See, the Bible is very clear. It's, again, it's not what we know intellectually. It's what we do with that knowledge from our heart. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's important we understand what confess with our mouth means. Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. Confessing with our mouth means that in our heart, we agree with God. Confession means we agree with God about sin, that we are all hopelessly lost in our sin, just as this man was. And that we realize that on our own, there's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. And every effort we try to do in and of ourselves to save ourselves just adds sin upon sin. Confessing with our mouth agrees with God that the only acceptable sacrifice on our behalf was Jesus suffering and dying in our place. And confessing him as Lord of our life means we receive that free gift and we lay down our lives for him. We give him control of our lives. That's what it means to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then it says that we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we accept the truth, that the resurrection proves that the payment on the cross for your sin and mine was accepted as payment in full. That's what that means. And if we have truly accepted that in our hearts, we are saved. Anything short of that, Anything just from an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, we're in no better position than these demons here. God has given us as mankind the opportunity to repent. He doesn't give that to the demonic forces, but we have that opportunity. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but before we move on this section, I do think that it's important to note it says, again, my name is Legion, for we are many. These demonic forces, as evil as they are, are united in one purpose, and that is to destroy this man. They are on a mission of destruction. They're not caught up in arguing as to how to do it. They're just focused on that one goal. I'm so challenged in this as a Christian, and we as Christians, because we are have also been given a mission that is very different, obviously, than theirs. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 
from where you are in Mark, go to the right. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 17, Paul says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and note, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have been reconciled to God our broken relationship with our creator. We've been reconciled by the blood of Jesus, but we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ in this lost and dying world to bring this message to them. And I'm challenged again when we look back at our story as to how united these demons are in their mission of destruction and how so divided the body of Christ can be over our ministry of reconciliation. The things that divide us so often are so minuscule compared to the ministry that we've been given. Well, as we continue, verse 11, again, they're begging him not to send them to the abyss. They come up with another idea. Verse 11 says, now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Here we see in, in the Greek, this is actually deviled ham put out for us right there. The first recorded instance of a mass suicide. Those are obligatory as a pastor. I have to do that, so I'm sorry. But as we, as we look at this again, we've talked about the power of the demonic forces. They are powerful. And on our own, left to our own devices, we don't stand a chance. But our God is infinitely more powerful. See, it tells us in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And it's not just a little bit more. He is immeasurably more powerful. Again, never forget this. All of the forces that we face, demonic forces, they are created beings. Jesus is the creator. It's, it's again, not even on a, on a playing field that can be measured. They can't even go into a herd of pigs without Jesus' permission. And I, I love that. 
that should give you and I great comfort. Because the Bible is clear that these forces, no matter how powerful they are, cannot come against you and I to tempt us, to test us, to do anything against us without God's permission. And while he grants that permission, he also puts parameters around it. We have this promise from the word of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that says, no temptation. And that word temptation there is periosmos in the Greek. That can mean test, trial, or temptation. So no test, no trial, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Never forget that. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, tried, or tested beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, with the trial, with the testing, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The way of escape does not mean we can jump out at any time. It means a way through. He will not allow us to be tempted, tested, or tried beyond our capabilities and abilities to make it through in his power, in his strength, following his direction. That is a promise from the word of God. And as I mentioned before, the promise is true when it's made, not when you and I recognize it. And we can hold on to that in the middle of any test, in the middle of any trial, in the middle of any temptation. When it looks like there is no way through, we can hold on to the fact that there is because God said so, because he promised it. I think of the time when the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was discussing with Peter and he said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now, you and I might think, sifting like wheat, that's no big deal. It is if you're wheat. Because to be sifted as wheat, that means you've been yanked out by the roots, thrown on the ground, run over, separated, then crushed some more, tossed into the air. Big deal if you're wheat. Jesus said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, I hope you told him no. <laughs> but it says, Jesus said to him, but I prayed for you. He's been given that permission, Peter. But I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Guess what happened? He got sifted, but his faith didn't fail. He returned, and he strengthened his brothers. The enemy is powerful, but our God is all-powerful. And Hebrews 7 says that he lives to make intercession for you and I. He's praying for you and me. In the same trials, difficulties, suffering, things that we're going through, when we're being sifted, when we're being shaken, when we're having these things, Jesus is praying for us. Romans 8 tells us the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in those times when we're in the middle of it and we don't know how to pray, we don't know what to pray. It tells us the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the perfect will of God for us. You almost feel bad for the enemy. He just doesn't have a chance. Not really. Verse 14. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city. 
and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. This 2,000 pigs run into the sea, or drowned there. They run into the city and tell everybody. They came out to see Jesus, and notice, observing the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it, described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and about all the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. Instead of giving glory and praise to God, because here this man who, all of them, they've been trying to bind, they've been trying to fix, they've been trying to work on, and finally they just gave up and put him out to live in the tombs. He's cutting himself, screaming, running all over. Now they see him in his right mind, totally normal, and their response? What about the pigs? They're all dead. Jesus, get out of here. Amazing. Amazing. That people would prefer lunatics and pigs over freedom in Jesus. can't help but point out the fact that here is this man who I don't know the picture that's running through your mind when we're talking about this and reading but it's probably worse than we can imagine is here now totally calm sitting at the feet of Jesus totally changed what man couldn't do no matter how hard it tried Jesus did and we don't, we don't run into people like this every day like that, obviously, but we run into people just as lost, just as filled with sin, just as, as deceived by the enemy. We see people on, on television, we see these different things going on, and we're looking at it like, man, how do you get like that? And if we're not careful, we can start thinking, man, that, those guys, that, they're beyond the reach of Jesus. Even, even Jesus can't. Guys, the grace of God, the love of Jesus can reach and touch and change and transform everybody. Nobody is beyond the reach of Jesus. Again, he got in a boat and went across the sea to save this man. But that's just a small picture of the fact that he stepped off his throne in heaven, became one of us, lived a perfect sinless life, and died in our place to save us. Maybe, maybe it's you. And you're here today and listening to this or watching online and hearing this, and you're saying, yeah, but you don't, you don't know my life. You don't know the sin I'm caught up in. You don't know the things that I've done. There's no way he could, could or would forgive me. There's no way he could love me after all that I've done. I'm here to tell you that is a lie from the pit of hell itself. Because you're right, I don't know, and I quite honestly don't care. Because Jesus died for you. Jesus shed his blood for you. It's easy for us to kind of put this all into this one big, huge basket that Jesus carried to the cross in that. And while that is true, 
the reality is he had to pay for each individual sin because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Each sin, he took your sin personally to the cross. He suffered and died for you. He loves you that much. You're not out of the reach of his grace. As a matter of fact, he came here. He's here today. He brought you here today to meet you here today. If you've never given your life to him, don't send him away today. Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter two, therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, that's you and I, he himself likewise also partook of the same so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He did this to free you, and you can have that freedom today. You can know that your sins are forgiven, completely wiped out. You can know that you have eternal life today. You can be free we sang of these songs earlier, and you might have been thinking, what is he talking about? Bro all these chains being broken, all of this kind of stuff. All of your chains can be broken today. You can have freedom today. It's a matter of repenting. It's changing direction. It's, repentance is simply that. It means to change direction. I mean, you're going this way in your life. It's a, it's a life of sin. It's a life of chasing all of these other things down. It's a life of trying to fix and do good to, to please God. You can't do it. Changing that direction and turning to Jesus and simply receiving the free gift of salvation that he paid in full for on the cross for you, making that personal in your life and making Jesus Lord of your life. And you can have that freedom today. What in the world could be stopping you? Pride, fear. I only speak of personal experience with that. Afraid of, well, if I do that, what am I going to have to give up? Well, Jesus addresses that when he says, what does it benefit you to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? I'll tell you, you will never regret it. <laughs> you won't miss the things that you, that you leave behind. Because the life that will be opened up for you, this freedom life in Christ, there's no comparison. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God. And note, for he will abundantly pardon abundantly pardon. You can't out-sin the grace of God. If you come with your sin, his blood washes it all away. Abundantly pardon. If you've walked away from the Lord, if you're, if you've, if you're a prodigal, you've, you've wandered away, you've backslidden, come back today. Come back today. He's waiting with his arms wide open again to abundantly pardon, to wash it all away, to make it all right again. Verse 18, as we look at these last couple of verses as we close, verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus obliging. Jesus, get out of here. He's getting in the boat to leave. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, that, saying, Jesus, get me out of here. Take me with you. And he did not let him. But he said to him, 
Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. In our story we've looked at this morning, it's interesting when we go back through that word again, implore, used several times, there's three prayers that have been made to Jesus. First, the demons, remember they said, don't send us to the abyss before our time, don't send us out of the country, but send us into the pigs. Jesus said, go. The second, from the townspeople, when they came out and again saw this man healed sitting in his right mind, and the, and the 2,000 dead pigs said, Jesus, get out of here, and Jesus said, okay. The third prayer from the one that he healed says, Jesus, let me come with you, and he said, no. I mean, if, you did, if we didn't read the last couple of verses right now, what would you have expected Jesus to say? Absolutely. Come on, man. Peter, move over. Let this guy lay down. He's had a pretty rough go of it. Let's let him crash on the way back across. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, no, go. Go back to your hometown. Go back to the village. Go back to all the people you've been terrorizing for the last few years and tell them what I did for you. <laughs> I can only imagine some of the disciples kind of looking at each other. You're going to send that guy? This guy is going to be your first missionary to the Gentiles? Don't you think he needs some evangelism training first? Maybe some Sunday school classes? Learn how to share, you know, share your faith? No, Jesus says go. Tell you what, I can't think of a guy less prepared for ministry, can you? And what about a tougher audience? Go back to those. If I tell you, that challenges me, and I hope it challenges you. How much training do you need to be a missionary for Jesus? How much training do you need to be the only missionary in your neighborhood or in your workplace for Jesus? He just said, go back and tell everybody what I did for you. He didn't say, get involved in deep theological discussions. He said, just go tell them what I did. Because if he would have gotten involved in, the, in some of the deep, deep, deep stuff, he'd have been ridiculed. And we make it so hard sometimes. We say, you know what, I can't. Because if they start asking me these questions or these questions or start going down this road, I won't be able to answer those types of things. And we, we way overcomplicate it. <laughs> Bottom line is, it doesn't matter how smart you are and how you can defend certain things. Yes, we're to, we are to defend our faith, absolutely. I'm not putting that down. But you're gonna run into people. It doesn't matter what you say. They're gonna have an argument for it because their heart is hard towards that. The one thing they can't ever argue is what Jesus did in your life. I was this, now I'm this, Jesus met me here. They can't argue that. There's no way they can argue that. And that's all Jesus said to go do. And we overcomplicate it so much. <laughs> this week I, I had, a, had a birthday, and it got me thinking about a birthday many, many, many years ago, probably 40, when my parents let me invite my two best friends to come up with us to, to our cabin that we had in the mountains to go fishing in Colorado, and we had this great lake that we went fishing on all the time up there. And one of my friends, he and I went fishing together all the time, and we had the best gear, we had you know, all of the best fishing equipment, 
My other friend had never been fishing before. And on the way over to our house, his parents stopped by a sporting goods store or Walmart or whatever and bought him, I'm not kidding, a Snoopy fishing pole. I still remember the box, taking it out of the box, because my other friend and I are kind of, you know, about that big. And so my other friend and I, we get all of our stuff all put together. We're out at the lake, and we get all of our gear going and the best stuff, all this kind of stuff, and we cast out like halfway out into the middle of the lake, because we could. So... And we get our, everything set. And so then we start helping my other friend with his Snoopy fishing pole. And we get the hook put on and, and, and a, a bobber, of course, you know. And we can think. And he casts it. We show him how to cast. And he casts out as far as he can. It goes out like 15 feet. Before that bobber quit bobbing from the cast, <laughs> almost tore the pole right out of his hand. He didn't even know how to reel it in. We had to show him how to do that. The biggest rainbow trout I'd ever seen come out of that lake. So we're, of course, beginner's luck, right? Get it on the stringer. We hook it, bait up his hook again, throws it out again. 30 seconds later, a bigger one. After four or five, my, my other friend and I, we reel our stuff in. We put bobbers on and we're just kind of flipping our poles out there and start pulling in a whole bunch of fish. <laughs> Moral of the story, just simply go where the fish are. And use the equipment God gives you. That's it. We way overcomplicate it. Because how many of you, let me remember Paul Harvey, right? We've, we, never, we never see this guy again. We never hear from him again. But what we do know is he was obedient. He did what Jesus told him. And he went out and he started telling other people. He started telling everybody he came in contact with us. They were amazed. And we would be too. His testimony is like, yeah, remember that crazy naked guy down on the beach? That was me. And Jesus touched me and transformed me. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the love in his eyes when he looked at me in the eye. Let me tell you how my life is totally transformed and changed. We never meet him again. But when we get to chapter 7, Jesus comes back to the Decapolis region and it tells us multitudes come out to see him. Later on, 70 AD, when everything goes down in Jerusalem, there's records of the underground church at the time, the Christian church, fleeing to the Decapolis region because the church is thriving there. And even read this at one point. The Council of Nicaea, those that got together to put the Nicene Creed together, one of them was the bishop from Susita, which is one of the Decapolis cities. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> we don't know the rest of our story. God does. God does. God knows what he's going to do if we'll simply be obedient telling our story. He knows what... He, he, he gets in the boat here, and he goes back to the other side, and when we get back together again and pick, pick up in, in chapter 5 here, we're going to see that ministry continues on over there, but he sent this guy out to simply be obedient, to go give his testimony. Guys, God, Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. He's coming back for us, but he told us, and he sent us out, not to be prosecutors, not to be judges, not to be jurors, but to be witnesses. 
And witnesses simply give the testimony. What did I see? What did I hear? What's God doing? That's what we're called to do. What happens from there is up to him. We just simply need to be obedient, sharing and telling our story. Would you please stand? Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as we see in the story before us today, your great love for one hopelessly lost sinner, that you would be willing to cross the sea, face the storm, to get there for this one man. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to step off your throne in heaven to become one of us, to live a perfect, sinless life, and then, Lord Jesus, to be betrayed and crucified, to suffer and die in our place, to save us hopelessly lost sinners. Lord, we thank you that you have given each one of us a story. Some more sensational than others. But Lord, we have one thing in common. We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have made us alive forever. If you're here today and you don't have a story, Jesus wants to give you one today. And again, it's simply a matter of responding to the Holy Spirit in your heart. Repenting again is simply turning from the direction you're going and turning to Jesus. Receiving from him the forgiveness of your sin, but receiving from him the power over sin moving forward. Making him Lord of your life, surrendering your life to him. It's a matter of just going before him in your heart. And a prayer, as I mentioned, does not save you. But from your heart, if you go before him, giving your life to him, you can know that freedom today. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you are always faithful. <laughs> always faithful. Lord, give us opportunity this week to share our story. Prepare hearts to receive the story. To receive what it is that we're saying. Lord, give us boldness. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.